Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, nine books to date, soon to be volume 10, available at Amazon in paperback and ebook formats, and for the audio files out there, and I know there are many of you, volumes one through eight and soon to be nine, available at Audible, Amazon, and iTunes as well. And now, may I welcome to you, <laughs> or may I welcome to the show, my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing great, and and welcome to you, too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I got sidetracked mentally when I made that blunder uh, (laughs) because I'm thinking about uh, what I told you about just before we uh, began the show today. We had a, uh, uh, unfortunately, one of our listeners' uh, father passed away, Jonathan and uh, Bonnie, our condolences go out to you. And uh, Jonathan and I, Kev, uh, had a good conversation last night into the wee hours in the morning. And uh, turns out his father was a pilot of the old P-51 warhorse in Korea. Mustang, P-51 Mustang. Yeah, the Mustang. They called yeah. that thing the warhorse. Ah, And, uh, you know, we were talking, you know, you and I with aviation and planes with our father the way we grew up. uh, You know, it's good to reminisce about things when you're going through a tough time, you know. Oh, yeah. And uh, so Jonathan and I were kicking around this airplane and uh, I was telling him how it had changed the face of the war in World War II when they put those drop tanks on it so the... Mustangs could accompany the bombers deep into Germany, fight off the Luftwaffe, and return with them. Exactly. I actually built, now that you mentioned it, I just watched the other night a documentary. I think it was on uh, Disney Plus, um, but it's a National Geographic, Nat Geo documentary, I think, if memory serving me correctly, on the 8th Air Force and the start of the 8th Air Force in Europe, right, where they... That was the first bomber squadron that was deployed at the start of World War II from the U.S. into uh, uh, Great Britain. And right. I, I learned a lot. I thought I knew a lot about the 8th Air Force and some of the fighter planes and stuff. But they were flying mostly B-17s back then. Right. The Flying Fortress. And the part that I didn't know was... You know, they started doing the bombing raids without any fighter escort. Yeah. And then, like, they lost, of course, they lost a lot of planes because the Luftwaffe was quite mighty and their fighters, you know, the Folkwolf 190 and the Messerschmitt, uh, they they were great planes and great, great pilots by then, too, because they had a lot of experience fighting with the Brits. And so they brought out the P-47, right, the Jug. And I thought the P-47, like, did a great job in the beginning, but but it just didn't, it couldn't even make it across the German lines. Yeah. So they would go up with these mighty P-47s, you know, protecting the B-17s. But as soon as the B-17s got to the German border, the P-47s had to turn around. 
Yeah. And yep. then it would be easy pickings. So, yep. And then finally, the P-51 Mustang came along. And yep. uh, that had the, the ability to get to Germany, uh, into Germany and back. And, of course, it was what it did, like 450 miles an hour. And, you know, it had that Rolls-Royce Merlin engine in it and just a powerhouse. Yeah, 1,500 horsepower. Yeah. And uh, Jonathan and I were kicking around what kind of guns it had on it. And I was a little, I used to know more than I know today, but dig this, man. Six 50 cal Browning machine guns. Yeah. Two of them had the capability of 270 rounds per gun per minute, and four of them 400 rounds a gun. Mm. And I mean, if one of them bad boys got on your ass, man, your ass was grass and that plane was the lawnmower. Yeah, the other little fact, and we will get to cryptids, folks, I promise. But um, the other fact that I learned during that was this ace. Uh, His name was George Pretty. Did you ever hear of him? Uh, no. So I never heard of him, but he was a P-51 ace, the most successful P-51 pilot in the European theater at the time, and um, kept coming back and re-enlisting or not, you know, asking to go back to Europe, even though he was so successful and did so many missions, they sent him back to the U.S. for mandatory return to the U.S. Then he insisted on coming back. And he was up on his what ended up being his last mission, shot down a couple of uh, Messerschmitts, and then um, he was chasing another one, had it in his sights. And in a tragedy, our anti-aircraft guys from the ground were trying to shoot down the Messerschmitt and missed and hit him. Oh, boy. Oh boy. Yeah. And he ended up uh, uh, landing in a field, crash landing in a field, but the... The, when the shell hit his plane, it, like, severed one of his arteries, so he never made it uh, uh, past there. Yeah, just a brutal story, this guy, George Preddy. Yeah. Well, all kudos, kudos go out to all of these servicemen and women who have sacrificed uh, a great deal, some of them their very lives. Uh, we salute you. Yes, and very, very sorry about... Uh, Jonathan. Your dad. What's yeah, that? Jo- Jonathan and Bonnie's. Yeah, very sorry, Jonathan and Bonnie, about your dad. Um, Bill and I have been through it. It's been a long time for us, but it still hurts a lot. So I can't tell you it gets better quickly or anything. So our prayers are with you. Yeah, so, uh, well, from the war horse to cryptids in the news <laughs> and other oddities, Kev, what do we got today? Yeah, so uh, we're going to get into... Uh, a very old uh, set of sightings. But before we get there, I wanted to mention something that is cryptid-related. So I'm out at the coast uh, for a couple of days, and I'm walking up my street last night from the beach uh, here in North Carolina. And it's the sun is still up. You know, it's close to sunset, but the sun's still up. And a big coyote comes walking across the street, about 15 yards in front of me. Wow. Yeah, and and we have coyotes out here, but you don't see them too often. And you don't, you don't see them in the daytime too often, you know. But the reason why I'm mentioning this is, here it is, I see this coyote, comes walking out of one yard, crosses the street, like at a slight angle in the road I'm walking on, and then goes into somebody else's yard. So I see this thing for about 10 seconds. But I don't even have a chance mentally to take my phone out to take a picture or a video of it. And I thought this was interesting because I got a really good look at it. But you spend a good portion of, you know, the first five or 10 seconds trying to figure out exactly what you're seeing before you're thinking about taking the camera out. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting, you know, related to our podcast because, you know, I haven't seen a Bigfoot. But, you know, you always say, oh, you're going to be right on top of that camera. But I would imagine the first five or 10 seconds, especially with a Bigfoot, you're like, what the hell is that? You know, exactly. Maybe 20 seconds. Right. And then most of the sightings don't last that long. Right. And then you got to pull your phone out if you have a phone. Right. And uh, 
you're still thinking about this thing being in front of you and moving away or whatever it's doing, and you're trying to find the the photograph uh, button. Yeah, or yeah, the, and you're thinking, yeah. and you're but but you know you may also be thinking in that case, what is that? Is that somebody dressed up? You know what? And then you know when you finally figure it out and process all the info and say, holy crap, that's a Bigfoot. Um, then it's probably too late to get your camera out. And if you're lucky enough to get your camera out, boy, you might be a little shaky when you're re- recording that video, too. <laughs> you think so? You think so? Maybe. I think so. I mean, everybody's <laughs> always so critical of people being shaky. But yeah. I could see after, you know, not the first time I'm seeing a coyote, but I was thinking about last night, you know, getting ready for our podcast today. And... Um, I was like, wow, look at that. I didn't even have a chance to get my, my phone out to take a picture or a video of this beast crossing in front of me. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And it's a, it's a good observation, uh, something that should be taken to heart by everybody, that you don't know how you're going to react in any given situation uh, until you personally find yourself enthralled in it, so yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, you know, why didn't you get the picture, man? One hundred percent, unbelievable. Yeah, how big was this coyote? Like German Shepherd size? He was a smaller one, so I was I was kind of processing in my mind, like, is that a gray fox or is that a coyote? And uh, it was and uh, it was Cody, so okay. significantly bigger than a little gray fox, uh, but not as big as a big German Shepherd. Ah, okay. But good yeah. looking, good looking beast. He was healthy. Wow, Must that's be eating well. All right. So now into the serious meat of cryptids in the news and other oddities. So we're going to go back in time, as promised. And a lot of this information comes from a website called Explore Southern History. And uh, they have some good, good articles on there from the past. And this one goes back to the state of Arkansas and uh, a lot of sightings that happened of the hairy man when the early settlers in the 1800s were going out and, uh, you know, doing some homesteading in and around the state of Arkansas. Okay. So... You know, basically, these these early frontier people down in the south, it turns out they would often run into a creature that they called the wild man. Yeah. 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 And the earliest known recorded sightings took place in February and March of 1846. That's a a good good long while ago. And... uh, Another friend of the podcast that I speak to often, uh, Philip, uh, he always refers to the wild man. Yeah. So, and he he's from uh, Kentucky. Well, yeah, same neighborhood, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is in 1846, February and March, so kind of winter coming into spring, in eastern Arkansas, in an area called Crowley's Ridge. And stories about the creatures uh, were carried in newspapers all across the country, Bill. Interesting. Yeah, so on March 13th in 1846, the Baltimore Sun reported that his track, meaning his footprint, measures 22 inches. Wow. Yeah, and his toes are as long as the common man's fingers. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. and So, you know... Uh, you know, we we don't talk about the dimensions of the tracks that often. Right. Uh, but, you know, I used to think that when people were saying close to two feet or better than 20 inches, that it might have been an exaggeration. But no, I mean, if you have a really big critter, you need a good foundation to support that base. Right. And uh, so if you had a nine foot or a 10 foot creature, you couldn't be walking around on a size 15. Yeah. And they actually say in this same article, they go on to say, and and, and uh, language is kind of awkward. So this is their language, although my language is often awkward as well. In this case, it's how it's written. It says, and in height and make, he is double the usual size. 
Wow. So probably not literally 12 feet tall, but meaning, you know, just, you know, a lot bigger than a person. Oh, yeah. 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 Wow, that's incredible, man. And we're talking newspaper articles were generated uh, across the country. Yeah, I got a couple more here I'm going to go yep, okay. go into. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the second surge of news coverage took place about five years later in 1851. And the New Hampshire Patriot and State Gazette reported that on May 29th of that year, an expedition was about to leave Memphis, Tennessee, to hunt for the wild man. Oh. And the, the, the wild man uh, monster was said to be of gigantic size and covered with hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I was wondering why Memphis, you know, because my geography is terrible. And I didn't realize until I looked at the map, even though I've been to Memphis, that Memphis is on the border with Arkansas. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah, so, so uh, it was all occurring in a a, 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 re- a, a relatively tight proximity. Well, and they were, I think they were going into Arkansas to go after the critter, but that was, you know, the nearest big city at the time. Yeah. yeah where they Memphis. could form a bit of a posse. So that yeah. same newspaper article uh, followed about a month later, quoting um, that the wild man had been seen chasing a herd of cattle. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I and, mean, and this comes from the Memphis Inquirer. It says he was of gigantic stature, the body being covered with hair and the head with long locks that fairly enveloped his neck and shoulders. Wow. The wild man, after looking at them deliberately for a short time, turned and ran away with great speed, leaping from 12 to 14 feet at a time. <laughs> you know, Kemp, it's remarkable. First of all, the wild man obviously was the first hippie. <laughs> and then, but secondly, all of the things you're saying, in a nutshell, lend credence to so many accounts of cattle with their head and neck twisted. Yeah. Uh, these people seeing, describing the hairy man running away like a long jumper in the Olympics. You know, these things, these creatures have incredible capabilities, and they don't care what we think, what we believe or do not believe about them. Incredible. Yeah, crazy, crazy. So this Memphis Inquirer, they noted that the monster had been seen in St. Francis, Green, and Poinsett counties, which is in Arkansas. I looked that up uh, mm-hmm. for 17 years. Wow. Yeah, and a statement that indicates uh, that now lost reports may have been made as early as 1834 in that area. Yeah. Amazing, right? Yeah, and, you know, record-keeping, Kev, obviously these were pieces of paper kept in a desk drawer in some little shantytown house or office it's uh, you know we look back like why not this why not that you know it just simply was not the way back then yeah and who knows if if Kevin Sheehan kept records if the people that came after him or cleaned out his office when he died even took care to go through what he had or did they just throw it in the fireplace yeah you know but uh, <laughs> Yep. Really? And, uh, and so a little bit more here from the articles, because they're, they're fantastic. Uh, yeah. Colonel David C. Cross and Dr. Sullivan of Memphis were said to be organizing an expedition to search for the creature. And they write that this may well have been the first Bigfoot hunt in American history. No written details of the results of their search have ever been found, but certainly could exist. Hmm. Yeah. That, that is interesting. Yeah, listen to this one. So another uh, round of accounts appeared in the nation's newspapers in 1856. And on January 3rd of that year, the Pittsfield Sun reported, a wild man seven feet high is stated to be roaming through the Great Mississippi bottom in Arkansas. Numerous travelers and hunters have asserted that they have seen him. 
but none have been able to get near enough to give particulars concerning the strange being. And it says, not all accounts were from the swamps of eastern Arkansas. A fairly bizarre report appeared in May of 1856, reporting a sighting in April on the upper Red River and noting that the creature had also been seen in northern Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And according to this version, which appeared in the Wisconsin Patriot on May 10th in 1856, the wild man was spotted breaking the ice of a frozen lake. He was covered with hair of brownish cast and was described as being well-muscled. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? More than interesting, because you're talking about articles spanning basically a decade uh, from start to finish, and I'm sure there was more. Yep. Uh, And uh, sightings of this creature in many different settings. Yeah. Uh, you remember we had that account, Kev, where the uh, couple was hiking up north and they walked out on the frozen lake and found that uh, deer carcass. Oh, torn yeah, apart. yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, with the footprints going back through the crunchy surface of the, the snow-laden and ice. And it was like over. a partial deer carcass, right? Yeah, it yeah. was that. They thought, I, oh, it's coming back to me now. They thought it they fell saw through the, head- the ice. Right. They thought they saw the head of a deer that was attached to a body that had fallen through the ice. Right. But it was just the head. Yeah. And uh, so who knows? I guess at the time we were talking about maybe this thing came out onto the ice and got this thing. Yeah. You know, Uh, felt it had it kind of trapped out there, you know. Yep. But uh, the power, the sheer power and force of these... And here, look, you're talking about a colonel and a doctor having put their two heads together about forming some type of hunt yep. for this hairy man. And and all of these witnesses, hunters and people, sharing testimonies of having seen it but couldn't get close to it. Uh, first of all, I don't know why you'd want to get close to it, but maybe close would be 100 yards instead of 400 yards. Yep. Uh, but come on, people. I mean, obviously there is something out there stomping around America. 100%. Yeah. That, wow. Pretty. I, I mean, I love these stories from the 1800s. Just fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I don't know really how much further back you could go before you'd run out of any type of written documentation. Right. I mean, what do you think about that, Kev? I got... You know, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I mean, in the U.S., certainly, first newspapers you'd think are in the 1700s, right? Yeah, and sparse. Sparse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, who knows how much of that paper was left anywhere? As you know, a hundred years went by from there. You know. No, I agree, hundred uh, percent. So that's that's what we have today: the Arkansas Harry Man from the 1800s. Absolutely fantastic. (laughs) And lots of little data points in there. Uh, In particular, the size of the feet, uh, the sighting of the the individual seeing the hairy man running down uh, a a herd of cattle or running through them. Yep. Uh, I don't think he was in there trying to spook them. I think he was like a lion trying to get one that he had his sights on. I think he was looking for lunch, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't think a hairy man could dispatch, uh, you know, a 150-pound deer or a doe or a buck, how about a freaking 1,500-pound head of cattle? (laughs) You know, that's just, you know, unbelievable, man. Wow. Well, listen, guys, I'm going back to the archives today. Uh to re-up a fantastic account. And uh, when I'm done, you take you tell me what you think happened. This account was told to me by Butch McCaskey. And uh, from this point forward, it will be Butch telling you his own story. 
At the time of this event, I was living in Redmond, Washington, and my co-worker Paul was living in Seattle. We owned a food service business together, which operated out of Seattle. Paul was born and bred in the state, and I was a transplant from Texas. During our time working together, I had acquired a quad, being inspired by Paul, who had been an avid quad and trike rider since his youth. And he also knew a lot of great areas in the region for off-roading. Because of this, we would take excursions into the woods with a couple of our employees whenever the opportunity presented itself. We didn't always obey the rules as far as where or when we could venture out with our machines, and although I won't go so far as to justify such behavior, I will say that we were never destructive in any way. We loved the outdoors and respected it in every way possible. On this particular weekend, we were heading towards an area by Mount Rainier. Our plan was to camp there for two nights and head back on Sunday afternoon. We loaded up four quads on Paul's trailer and packed all of our usual gear into the truck. Paul had a crew cab with a lid on the bed, and everything we would need for the weekend was under that lid. We also had a number of five-gallon military fuel cans lashed to the trailer. Off we went on Friday afternoon, with Paul bringing us to a fairly secluded destination, as was his habit. Most of, most of the places that we go are old logging trails or fire breaks, and we like to make sure that we go fairly deep into the woods so that nobody will rat us out. After setting up camp, we pulled the quads off the trailer and went for a little exploratory stint. Rainier is surrounded by nice forests. It can be somewhat dense in spots, but it's considerably more open in others, creating the perfect combination for rat racing through the trails and timber. We had been gone for about 90 minutes or so before we returned to camp. It was getting late, so we started a fire, and after cooking up some grub and drinking a fruit brews, we hit the hay. In the morning, Paul was the first up, and he was stoking the fire when I came out of the tent. As soon as he saw me, he said, hey, Butch, check this out. All of the longer pieces of wood were pulled out of the fire when I got up. They were all burnt up on one end and unburned on the other. It was weird. So I asked him if he was sure that was what happened. He replied, of course I'm sure. Do you think I'm hallucinating or something? I'm telling you, all of these sticks were just like this when I got up and I left them here so that you guys could see them for yourselves. So I said, so are you saying that something was pulling sticks out of the fire while we were sleeping? To which he replied, answer the question yourself, brother. What else could it be? The sticks didn't get out here by themselves. By this time, the other guys had climbed out of the sack and were all standing around. We were all in agreement that an animal would not want to get close to the fire, and they certainly would not be willing to claw or bite the ends of burning sticks to drag them around. We all thought that some pranksters must be out in the woods with us, but who would bother to tra traverse through the woods in the middle of the night to do such a thing? And they could be shot if they had spooked the wrong people. We ate breakfast and broke camp for a day of riding. Once we got back, that night was just like the previous night. We ate, drank, bullshitted until midnight, and then crawled into our tents completely spent. The following morning, Paul was the first one to get up again. This time, he dragged everyone out to see what had happened. Immediately, we all stood around, still half asleep, as he jabbered on about the sticks again. Now, I started thinking that he was getting up early and pulling the sticks out as a goof, making, us, making up some type of ghost story just to freak everyone out a little bit. In fact, if that was his aim, it was working rather well, but I didn't tell him so. 
We hasted out in much the same manner as the previous day before setting out for a ride. Now that night, we all had a little too much to drink, and Rich had nodded off while sitting on his quad. One by one, we had all gone into our respective tents, and whoever was last didn't bother to give Rich a shake so that he could get off the quad and go to sleep. We were fairly toasted, so nobody could really take the blame for not doing so. Uh, As we were crawling out of the tents and shaking off the cobwebs in the morning, I was the first to ask the others, where is Rich? Paul said that the last time he remembered seeing him, he was asleep on the quad. We started shouting his name and walking around the woods, but we didn't hear any reply. This was not good. Where could he have gone, and why would he have left the camp without saying something to someone? It just didn't make sense. We decided we needed to get help and fast, so Paul took the truck to get the police and left us at the camp. We kept looking while he was gone, but we didn't venture too far from the camp, not wanting to compound the problem by making Paul come looking for us should he return. About an hour and a half later, Paul returned with three cops. As the morning turned into afternoon, there were more police arriving and a chopper was combing the air as well. As you would imagine, they questioned us rigorously. We were now suspects, even though we hadn't done a thing. At some point, two canine units arrived. They took a piece of his clothing and his sleeping bag to let the dog scent them before setting off into the woods. We ourselves were helping the effort by walking around and looking for anything that might give us a clue as of his whereabouts. Everyone was calling out his name, and one of the cops was using a megaphone to amplify his call. I was wondering if he had succumbed to some type of medical condition that made him lose his capability of thinking rationally. Surely he had to have wandered away in his own. I mean, what else could have happened? I knew that Alzheimer's patients do such things, and after all, he had been drunk like the rest of us. This was turning into a full-blown search-and-rescue effort. The police told us the chopper had infrared so if he was lying anywhere, it would pick him up for sure. Several hours later, we heard that one of the canines had picked up a black riding glove. We didn't see it. We were just told that a glove had been found. One of the officers asked if he had been wearing his gloves when he was asleep on the quad, and we all agreed that he had been. They were lightweight calfskin gloves worn more for comfort and grip on the hand controls than for any type of protection. The search continued for a couple of days. Close to 100 people were involved with various search parties, and nothing more was seen or heard of him. He had vanished. It took until the following spring, at the time when our softball league was getting started up, for some light to be shed on the events of that fateful day. There were quite a few men's teams from the area, and we played each other from time to time during league play. On this particular day, we were playing a team comprised of some local law enforcement guys, and I immediately recognized one of those guys from that day in the woods. So I walked over to talk to him. After some small talk, I asked if anything ever came in the search besides the glove. And confirming that I wouldn't share the information with anyone, he told me that the glove still had two fingers in it that had been torn off from the hand. I asked if there had been any bite marks, to which he said no. It was as though something had torn the glove so violently that it had snatched two fingers in the process from his hand. I said to him, what the hell could tear the fingers off a man like that? And he looked around to make sure nobody was listening before saying, the word is that they think one of the big boys got him. I asked him what the hell a big boy was. 
and he made some gestures with his body, which I took to mean that he was talking about a Bigfoot, a fact that he silently confirmed. We never had a funeral for Rich because there was no proof of death. They still haven't found a body, and to this day he is just another missing person in the woods of Washington. So there you have it, my dear listeners. Some people like to think of Bigfoot as a large, cuddly creature. <laughs> but that does not seem to be the case. Not very cuddly unless you consider ripping limbs off cuddly. Yeah. You know, and here we go Kev, back to those 1800 stories where this thing is running through a herd of cattle looking to strangle one of them and rip its limb off. And here we have a couple of digits left in a glove. I mean, I dare you, not that you could or would, but try ripping somebody's hand off or pulling their fingers out of the sockets. You'd have a really tough time of that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, just a brutal, brutal situation. Here they are all out having a good time, and one of them disappears and is never found. Yeah, missing person. Yeah. You know, where did he go? Nobody knows. And that, I mean, that area there, I've been out there near Mount Rainier, and it is as rural as rural gets. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, who knows? Maybe this poor slob had enough time to realize he was being grabbed or snatched, whatever the situation was, and he tried to gouge him in the face or something with his hand, and the thing just went, ah! You know, <laughs> ripped his, was grabbing his hand and wound up taking a couple of fingers with it. That's not really what they sound like, is it, Bill? Well, let me try again. Ah! You sound a little bit like Snoopy when he gets caught in the folding chair on the <laughs> peanut special. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think the Bigfoot is fiercer than that. I'm just saying. Oh, uh, yeah, it could be, you know. Could be. I'm trying to hold the volume down a little bit, you know. You don't want to wake up the Bigfoot? <laughs> well, you know, I don't want anybody complaining that I got a big mouth, you know. I'm generally, <laughs> I'm generally quiet and demure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, though. Awesome account, Bill. Yeah, I mean, talk about getting your creep on. Ooh. And you know something? Think about the sticks in that the fire pit or whatever you want to call it that they made. This thing must have been coming into the camp and, like, toying with them. Yeah, <clears throat> checking them out, you know. The sticks, like leaving a calling card, yeah, sliding them out and then sneaking away like it was trying to play with them or maybe communicate in some type of weird way before snatching one of their friends. Definitely totally weird. Yeah, yeah. But notice, too, how the people in the tents weren't taken. The guy that was alone, sitting on the quad where, you know, you could creep up behind him and just wrench him out of his seat, you know. Right. What a freaking horrific event. Yeah, absolutely. So, that's it, Kev. Some great stuff. And, uh... Once again, the historic accounts, just off the charts, man. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I love I love those old ones. So when I come across them, they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Now keep up the good work, and uh, we know that the people are enjoying this stuff because they tell us so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of the people enjoying things, we have some listener mail. Excellent. Excellent. So this first one, Bill, comes from Jürgen from Antwerp, Belgium. And Jürgen, I've been to Antwerp, home of some of the best chocolate in the world. Yeah, fantastic. I could go for a couple of chunks right now. <laughs> <laughs> and Jürgen writes, hello, gentlemen. Really enjoy the variety on the podcast and the brotherly interaction. It reminds me of the old U.S. radio show called Car Talk. But, of course, you guys are working on creepy cryptids rather than Porsches. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the truth, Jürgen? And Jürgen uh, says, a quick question for you both. Who is each of your favorite cryptid? 
And if it's the hairy man, then what's your favorite sighting and why? Mm. Au revoir, Jürgen. <laughs> Jürgen from Antwerp. <laughs> well, what do you say about that, Kev? Uh, well, my favorite cryptid is probably still the old spring Jack. Uh-huh. You know, and spring Jack, folks, if you haven't listened to that podcast yet, um, he was, that was back, I think, in the 1800s, maybe the 1700s. I think it was the 1800s in uh, Europe, in the U.K., just outside of London, and um, he would, like, bounce around, literally, from, like, rooftops to street tops, and, you know, was this creepy-looking character, but I, I uh, you know, have said since uh, the first time I came across it, like, he might have been, like, an early superhero, kind of like a, a weird Batman of sorts, so uh, I, I just love the mystique around that, and it's old. Which is uh, cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, it's funny, Kev, because I, I remember bringing up the subject matter to you a long time ago of checking out Spring Hill Jack. Yeah. And it's funny that you took a shine to the... Uh, oh, I love that story. Yeah. yeah it's awesome. And for me, uh, my favorite has always been uh, Bigfoot. And uh, the footage... That started it all to date is uh, my favorite, which is the Patty film. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about it that this creature exists in flesh and blood form. And uh, Patterson uh, and Gimlin as a combo uh, brought that footage to life, which to me is, you can challenge it all you want. I know what I'm looking at there, and that is legit. That's Good it, stuff. Kev. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jargon. Appreciate it. <clears throat> All right. And our next uh, email comes in from Philip. And Philip uh, writes, I just finished Terry in the Woods, Volume 1, and was just thrilled with all the stories about the hairy man and the issues surrounding him. Your final chapter, 41, had myself scratching my head. The story made it sound more like a, a stick Indian or pug wedgie than a Bigfoot, with the small girl shape shifting into a monster. The stick Indians and pug wedgies lure you into the woods by sounding like little children. Oh, well, I thought I'd holler at you too. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. And WJ, please send KJ an autographed book so he knows what I'm discussing. <laughs> Sincerely, Philip. <laughs> yeah, you know, Kev, uh, we were talking a while ago. Uh, I spoke to Philip about this. And uh, we were talking a while ago about the st Stick Indians luring people into the woods uh, thinking they were going in to help some lost children. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Philip said that the Pukwudgie in Indian lore uh, has the ability to transform uh, so that initially what you the man saw as a little girl in a white dress in the field if you remember that, Kev, out by the fire tower in uh, Spokane. In Spokane, Washington. Quartz Mountain, I believe, right? Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, Mount Spokane, but I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I remember Quartz Mountain. Okay. And uh, and then this thing transformed, and that guy dropped thinking he had a stroke. Uh, something happened to him. He just fell to the earth. Uh, following up at the doctor afterwards, you know, but that thing transformed into some type of monster yeah. in front of him. So now Philip had said he was reminding me of the account, which I haven't read in a long time, and uh, that the guy fell down in the tall grass while seeing this happening, uh, like some type of medical condition had come over him. Hmm. And Philip had said, if the Pukwudgie was looking at him, uh, it would have come for him and may have more than likely have done him in. Ooh. 
but he said because he fell in the deep grass, perhaps the puckwudgie turned around and didn't see him. Oh, I see. So falling down, it might have actually saved his life. Exactly. Wow. And it and it left the scene. Wow. But uh, puckwudgies, man. I think you were talking about the puckwudgies a while. Yeah, back. I think we covered encryptids in the news and other oddities. Yeah, there's some creepy stuff going on Super out there. Super creepy. Wow. I don't know, Bill. You think it's creepy, like looking like a little girl in the field and luring you out for help and then turning into some demon creature? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I guess that's creepy. Oh, wait, Kev, let me get a little closer. I want to introduce myself. <laughs> Did you bring your iPhone with you? Let's take a picture. <laughs> Can you take a picture of me and the Puckwudgie together? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of creepiness... <laughs> Michael wrote in. Uh-huh. And the subject is Dark Watchers of California Big Sur. Hmm. And he says, Hello, gentlemen. My brother just shared a story from the news on the Dark Watchers of California Big Sur. Might be something for KJ to look into. Mm-hmm. Love the show, and my brother has all the books. And KJ cracks me up with his witches stuff. (laughs) Hey, listen, Michael, there's nothing funny about being afraid of witches. (laughs) And by the way, witches, I'm not mad at you or anything. So just stay away and don't write in. And for God's sake, don't come and visit me either. Well, we won't write in, but... It sure would be nice to visit you. Do you think we could come over? No. (laughs) So I have, Michael, done an episode. Maybe we'll revisit it uh, going back a couple of years now on the Dark dark Watchers, these shadowy creatures that appear in the hillsides of coastal California. And uh, it is high creepiness, creepiness and spectacular. So. Yeah. Yeah, good good stuff, Michael. <laughs> and was Michael's last name Myers? <laughs> <laughs> he did send a picture with a hockey mask. Huh? <laughs> Maybe he's just a fan of the sport. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and our last email for today, Bill, comes from David. And the subject is great new video of Sasquatch in Ontario on the shore of a lake island. Uh, And I don't know if you looked at this video or not, Bill. It's pretty darn cool. Yeah, I did look at it. Yeah. So he says, hi, gentlemen. I just saw this video that was posted by Rocky Mountain Sasquatch that was sent to them. Boaters on an Ontario lake were filming and got some great video of the creature walking across an opening by the shore. Arms look very long. This video looks like the real deal. Would love to see a human comparison video on the same island shore. What do you think? Mm-hmm. So what do yeah. you think, Bill? Yeah, uh, I, I tell you, man, so brief, but it looked legitimate to me, particularly in the odd proportions of the body scene. Yeah. it. You know, the could it be done... Uh, by people with costumes uh, in this day and age, yes. But proportionately, it looked so random and natural to me that it would be really difficult to reproduce that. Those are just my thoughts. Uh, yeah, but- and the creature definitely like looked like it belonged in that setting for what that's worth, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. sometimes it seems out of place, you know, but in that video, it was like, hmm, that looks legit. Now, the only thing that was counting against it in my mind, Bill, and you're going to laugh at this for sure, is that it was in Ontario, and, you know, the people in Ontario aren't as well armed. So somebody may get dressed up like a, a Bigfoot and not see the risk in it. Yeah. <laughs> but it didn't look it didn't look like somebody in a suit. I have to, you know, it was far away so you couldn't look for seams or anything, but mm-hmm. it just didn't look like somebody dressed up. And I'll tell you something else about that piece of footage, Kev. The creature did not necessarily look uh virile. 
the creature looked a little kind of crotchety to me. And by that, I mean it was a little hunched over. It looked like it had some age to it. Ah, okay. Maybe some wear and tear by reason of hard existence. Mm. If you revisit that and look at the picture again, it's kind of got a little bit of a forward tilt to the body, and the the low back and the hip segment looks like it's a little, uh, like it's been through the mill, so to speak, you know? Cool. It looked older to me. I'll I'll definitely take another look at it. Yeah. And I'll tell you something, folks. Uh, to date, two of my favorite pieces of footage that I've seen in recent years were that short clip of the Bigfoot, the Craven Bigfoot. Oh, C-R- yeah, out in Western Canada. Yeah, uh, Craven, C-R-A-V-E-N. Uh, I actually know a man that knew the guy that took that footage up there. Wow. And that man happens to be Jonathan, who we just gave condolences to. Oh, wow. He had run into the guy that took that footage up there originally, uh, who swore it was legit. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, And then the second piece, Kev, was that one that was sent to us recently that we said uh, we had both seen already, that footage in the swamp in Louisiana. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's spectacular. I mean, those two clips, to me, uh, just scream legit. Yeah. Uh, and I actually think this Ontario footage has uh, a fair shot at legitimacy, as far as I'm concerned. It's pretty good, no doubt about it. Yeah, you know, because <clears throat> I, look at it again, Kev, and tell me if you don't think that this is an older creature after I've said what I said to you. Yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, I don't know if you if you were going to go through the trouble, uh, you'd probably come up with something that looked like uh, Mean Joe Young or something, uh, rather mm-hmm. than something that looked like it was aging. Uh, it'd be easier to pull off for a full-grown guy, you know, six foot two or something with a decent build to put a costume on and just walk around, you know, erect and strong-looking, you know, whatever terminology you want to lay on that. Very cool. Yeah. Hmm. Well, is that it, Kev? That's it for this week, Bill. So, uh, great podcast. And fantastic, fantastic data points once again brought forth from those old, old newspaper articles. And by the way, folks, if you should find yourself walking around the woods of Arkansas or nosing your tin boat onto the shoreline of a lake in Ontario... You better remember one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're gonna need. Sleep tight. <laughs> <laughs>